Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, uh, you know, adjusting on the run is always complicated for an institution. So we're doing, you know, the best we can. Uh, so today's talk, as we were saying, will be the last in situ for quite some, maybe a couple weeks. We're not sure. And I thought today we would discuss this hanging scroll by Kano Tanyu uh, of a dragon emerging from clouds with bamboo and calligraphy uh, created probably 1650, 1660. And we'd couch this within a larger discussion of the Kano school. And if anybody of you have any vague recollection or understanding of Japanese art, you'll know the Kano school if you just turn around and look behind you. Cut gold, beautiful, great natural landscapes, beautiful brush, brush and ink paintings of, you know, birds, flowers, seasonal, four seasons usually. And so the Kano school is in Japan, particularly in the, the, the context of the samurai. You know, it's one of the longest running schools or is the longest running school of painting in all the world, not just Japan. Ran for about 300 years from the mid-15th century, Hainol, all the way to the mid-19th century. And it became the, essentially in Japan, particularly during the to Edo period, which is 1615 to 1868, when the samurai ruled Japan, it became essentially the house style in Japan. And what it promoted was not only those who were in power, but the ethos and the power of the ruling shogun, the daimyo, and the samurai. It was meant to impress, and nobody like Kanotanyu did it quite like Kanotanyu. By the time he died in 1674, and just to give you some sense of context, Rembrandt's dates roughly correspond with his life dates. So 1602 to 1674, roughly, Rembrandt, I think, lived into the 1660s. They never met, but they equally, in their realms, Europe and Japan, captured the zeitgeist, what was happening. They were contemporary art in the 17th century. And Kanotanyu is no different. He was, when the, he died, when he was laid to rest just outside of Tokyo, at a temple outside of Tokyo, which you can still visit today, the age of 72, if my math is correct, he was the most well-known, most appreciated, most beloved, probably the most well-paid artist in all of Japan, and just to give you some kind of context as well, when he died, Edo, Tokyo, now Tokyo, was about one million people, so it wasn't only a sprawling, urban, densely packed urban space, but it was also probably the biggest urban space in all the world. So it was you know, a place of style, connoisseurship, and he was at the head of that. We don't know much about him because he was a great painter, but he was not a poet per se or a diarist. Most of what we know about him appears on his paintings, and that's often you know, poems, indications of what, what he may have been inspired by, brushing pages of the past. But we do have access to journals by Buddhist monks of quite high repute, particularly in Kyoto, and it's important to remember that Kanotanyu, while he was based in Edo, where the shogunate was, the Tokugawa shogunate, he had a, quite a large residence in, at, at Edo Castle to undertake various projects. He was often being lent out to the emperor in Kyoto and, you know, castles in Nagoya and Osaka to essentially do their interior design, for lack of a better term. He was a painter, but he was also designing interior spaces. So he was a bit more than a painter. He was designing the spaces that power the powerful people in Japan uh, hung out in for the most part. And we know uh, to some extent who he was through the journals of one particular 
uh, Buddhist monk in Kyoto named Josho. And Josho wrote a great deal about his interactions with Kanotanyu because like anybody, if you know Picasso, if you know Degas at the time, you wanted to record all these great kind of events that you had with them. And the, the journals are intriguing because they record Josho's interaction with him. Often Kanotanyu would paint more intimate paintings for him than he would make for you know, a shogun. And they often had these great times where they would have a, a sake drinking party with a bunch of patrons. Then they'd go out and look for wild mushrooms and come back and draw some paintings. So, you know, it was this amazing erudite kind of atmosphere that Kanotanyu hung out in. And Josho, we were very lucky that Josho captured a lot of those moments. And so you have a lot of these moments where he says, you know, Kanotanyu brought me a painting, a Russian ink painting, for, so that we could have tea next to it. And then we went out, collected some wild fauna, flora and fauna, and came back and had some more wine. See, it's just wonderful. And so we get a good sense of who he was, to an extent, what he did, and what he was interested in. So this painting in particular, this hanging scroll, is dated 1650, 1660. So this is in his elder years. He's getting a bit older. And if you compare it to what is behind you, the screen behind you, you'll notice that there is quite a stark difference. That is the screen behind you was done by Kano Sanraku, in, who is the head of the Kyoto School in, I think, 1625, 1635. That was meant for splendor. That was meant to impress. That was meant to go in an interior space. And when you walked in, you would just be overwhelmed with its opulence. This is more humble. This is more intimate. It is saturated with wetness. There's something very visceral about it. It's not austere. It's very touchable. And when we actually read the calligraphy, you get a sense that this is something more than a painting. And Kano Tanyu was a bit more than just a painter. He was a connoisseur. He was an art historian. He was, to some extent, a believer in Taoism, Buddhism. All of these different sacred paths had an had a impact on him. But above all things, he was a Kano school artist. And what he wanted to do was place the Kano school in the great history of Japanese art. We're talking about the 17th century. I mean, most art history wasn't written until the 20th century to give you some kind of scope of what uh, the art was happening. So he was very aware of where the Kano school sat, and he was very aware of where he wanted it to be. Now, after 1674, after his death, the Kano school continues on, and he essentially created the style. He turned a style that had, that had started in the 15th century into essentially a brand. And by 17th, 18th century, everybody knew what the Kano style was, and everybody of importance had Kano style screens and scrolls and so forth. And so he started this, he began this, or he crystallized all of those elements into something that we now, is we now understand and easily recognize. If we look at the painting itself, we see that there is a dragon. And if you look throughout this samurai exhibition, you will see a number of dragons. And dragons pervade the art of the samurai, they pervade the art of the Japan during the Edo period, because they were connected with Taoism, they were also connected with weather events. It's said when the dragon rises or the dragon roars, the clouds follow. And dragons were associated with east, and they were associated with summer. And so in Japan, in the summer, of course, it is exceptionally hot and humid, and there's rains and typhoons coming in. And so we get this sense of just pure saturation with this dragon emerging from these beautiful clouds. And above it, you may notice that there is just the trunk of a bamboo, one section of a bamboo with the leaves hanging down. And it's not said anywhere, but immediately my mind says, ah, well, 
If you have a dragon, in Taoism, if you have a dragon, its counterpart, its complementary, of course, is the tiger. And the tiger is associated with land, it's associated with the West, kind of more diminutive qualities, whereas the tiger is more overt and over the top. And so these two have a long history in Chinese thought and culture, as well as a long history in Japanese thought and culture. And you, know, you, start, you start seeing what's known as Long Ho or Long Hu, the dragon and the tiger appear on sarcophagus in like three or 4,000 years ago in China, and they become associated with mountain worship and Taoist immortals and all of these classic things that we think of uh, associated with Taoism, which has a huge impact on Japan. If we look f- down below it, we can see that there is a poem inscribed, and it essentially reads, the dragon arises from clouds, runs freely, uh, mountains and rivers. And so we get a sense of this, this wild, wet dragon that emerges from these clouds. It's dancing over the mountaintops, through the valleys, and flying around. It's kind of wild and untamed. And, you know, that to some extent is the way that chi works. If any of you have done uh, tai chi, if any of you have employed the aspects of feng shui in your home, or even had acupuncture, you understand that chi is this energy that kind of came out of this primordial nothingness. And it it runs freely and moves. And those who can channel it and harness its powers, you know, will ascend to become immortals or emperors or become quite, quite well off. If we look at the inscription on the left, we see something very intriguing. So Kanotanyu, his dates are 1602 to 1674. This reads, Bunmei Ninen, Yongatsu Gonichi. So the second year of Bunmei, and remember Japanese time is all delineated by error, emperor reigns essentially. The fourth month, the fifth day. And this corresponds roughly to, I believe, 1470. 1470. Now, what does that have to do with Kanutanyu, who is you know, a 17th century figure? Well, what we read on further and it says, this was drawn by an 80-year-old man, a man in his 80th year. And we know Kanotanyu never was 80 years old. So this is a reference to a historical brushing painter who all the Kano school revered and who, who had amazing impact on his, his art and his life. And what we think is, is that this is actually probably a drawing or a copy or a study of something from an artist who's known as Seshu Toyo, one of the great artists in Japanese history, brush and ink artist, who transmitted kind of 12th, 13th century Chinese brush and ink painting into a Japanese idiom, and who is now a revered forefather, for lack of a better word, in uh, Japanese art. And so what you're getting in this scroll is not simply a beautiful image of a dragon and a bamboo uh, segment, uh, some beautiful calligraphy, and then an inscription, but you're getting an art history course in what Kanutanyu loved, and the people he revered. And so to understand this a bit more, we have to go quite a ways back to the 15th century. Don't worry, I'm not going to take you century or year by year through this. We're not going to be here that long. But we have to go back to the 15th century when the Kano school began. And if you go into the gallery, gallery 20, where you have all the Zen calligraphy, the dragon and tiger as well, all the tea bowls, this is the ethos we're thinking about or the context we're thinking about. And in the 15th century, the Kano school was born. Kano Masanobu was the first of the Kano school artists. He actually was, I think, Tanyu's great, 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 great 
grandfather. So this line, again, is very important. The line of lineage is exceptionally important. Very rarely are artists adopted into the line, but they are. And during this period, this is the rise of the samurai, the 15th century. This is the rise of samurai as well as Zen Buddhism, which was coming in through, from China through monks who were bringing beautiful porcelain, porcelain vases and tea bowls. They were also bringing with them a culture of tea, which the samurai obviously glommed onto really quickly as a kind of social event, um, aid to meditation. Things that came, the arts that came to fruition during this period were things like ikebana, flower arrangement, chanoyu tea ceremony, no theater, which we have no masks and no robes here. So all of these things that we think are essentially Japanese culture come of age during the 15th century, including the Kano school. And the Kano school at that time was more interested in monochrome, brush, and ink. Not necessarily the gold emblazoned screens that you see behind you. That's a later, a later advancement in their style. But what's really important is that the Kano school from the very beginning was attached to Buddhist temples. They were great patrons of the Kano school as well as the reigning military elite, the shoguns, daimyo, and so forth. And so this connection lasts and continues all the way through to the end of the Edo period when the shogunate collapses. In the 16th century, what you're looking at right behind you happens, this great innovation of painting. If you look behind you, the screen by Kano Sanraku, who was an adopted son, takes place. So you have the Kano school artists taking brush and ink painting, gold and great washes of, of pigment, putting them together creating this very evocative, beautiful style of painting, which could be transferred from a, from a brush, from a screen, to an interior space of grand or small size. And so they were thinking not only, you know, what could be used on a screen, but also these great interior castle spaces, which obviously were now being built by shoguns and daimyos and so forth. And what's important to remember is that the Kano really rise to power with, the th with three great men, the three great shoguns, or the three unifiers, they call them, of Japan. Oda Nobunaga, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and of course, Tokugawa Ieyasu, who eventually unifies them. Each one of them had a very important relationship with those three, the three unifiers of Japan, and ultimately it was the Tokugawas who came to the fore uh, in the 1600s. What's one interesting story about the Tokugawas is when they destroyed Osaka Castle, which was the last great battle of this very tempestuous, difficult period in Japanese history, Tokugawa Ieyasu said uh, he sent out a number of his retainers to, to go through the rubble meticulously to find all the bits of broken pottery, all the broken swords, all bits of broken lacquer because his great foe had not only been a great general, but he'd also been a great cultural connoisseur. And so this is a very interesting story in the fact that the Tokugawas not only wanted to rule Japan through force, through violence, but they also wanted to culturally dominate all of their opponents. And so the Kano school actually played a really important and prominent role in this um, because the Kano style, which was attached to the shogunate, was the house style of Japan. And so this is where we pick up our story with Kano Tanyu. He was born in 1602 in the, you know, this very tempestuous time in Japan when things were uncertain. Nobody knew exactly who was going to come out the victor. Much, you know, it's kind of, we can understand this unsettled feeling today, I think, a little bit more with what's happening around us. We don't quite feel centered. We don't quite feel s stable. And so Kano Tanyu was born into this instability. And it was, he was 
you know, people realized very early on that he was a great painter. They didn't know he would uh, reach the heights that he did. And so his father was a Kano school painter. And so at the age of 15, I believe, he was employed in Edo, this new capital of Edo, where the Tokugawa shogunate was, had its seat. And he was employed as essentially the house painter of the Tokugawas. So he was the house painter of the ruling elite at the time. He was given this great stipend, about 200 koku, I think, a year, which a koku is a... The economy was based in rice, so a koku is like the average annual consumption of one person. So 200 koku was pretty significant. He was given a big studio space just outside the castle in the Kajibashi area or the uh, Smiths area. And he was allowed to essentially moonlight. They required him to show up and see the Shogun like every once in a while, which, you know, just the fact that he saw the Shogun as an artist was quite impressive. And then he could take on other commissions. So he was often in Kyoto, he was in Osaka, he was in Nagoya. Everybody knew Kanotanyu. He also gained great acclaim. He, was, he received these awards, Ho-in and Ho-en, which essentially are like the eyes of the Dharma and the seal of the, seal of the emperors. You know, he was well known by everybody and the shogunate treated him accordingly. And so this painting, we think, we don't know, was, was created in 1650, 1660. And if you'll notice, I've put it in a setting to mimic or replicate or imply a tokonoma space. So a space, you know, you probably set up specifically for tea. And you'll notice that there is the hanging scroll, the wetness dripping down, and you also see next to it a bezenware pot that possibly could have been used for water. So this implication of water is quite important. And it is, it is in this context that this scroll would have been seen, very rarely, most likely. And it's important to remember when you look at it closely that it's not paper that it's been painted on, it's actually silk. And silk is even more unforgiving than paper. Anybody who's practiced calligraphy on paper knows how difficult it is, and silk is even more complicated. And so when you look at it closely, you get a sense of these amazing whirls of clouds that, that appear on the upper, the lower, and the, the top-hand side. And so we think he was in his maybe 1602, 40s, 50s. He had had a child. He was looking towards the future. He was at the top of his game when he probably created this. And he was also looking back. He was thinking very assiduously of what came before him. And so this inscription of, you know, Bunmei Tu is probably a reference to Seshu Toyo and an image he saw. And it's also, he's, he's giving us a sense of what he's looking at, what he's seeing. And so this hanging scroll is a great companion to the work behind you by Kano Sanraku because it's there. They're two heads of the same coin, intimate interior space, kind of more grand palatial style of painting. And so the Kano school, obviously, in this context, these two galleries were, were set up as kind of the arts of war and the arts of culture, uh, the Bu and the Bun, which every samurai was supposed to enact on a daily basis. They were supposed to be great swordsmen, but they were also supposed to be great with a brush. And it was required by by rule that they do so, because at this point, in downtown Edo, you had about 500,000 samurai without anybody to fight, carrying around two swords, so it could be problematic. And so these two galleries are meant to evoke both of those rather seemingly contradictory sides of the coin for a, for a warrior in, in Japan at the time. I just want to say one last thing. This scroll was acquired through the benefaction of uh, Shane Laplastrier, who over the past five years has, has helped us build a much larger scroll collection. 
and so we're, we're grateful to him for, for all of his passion and interest in this collection, which has allowed us to pre present this much different aspect of painting than we have before.